Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand in your life that had an impact on you? Nike. You know, it's interesting with you know, all the last dance stuff going on here with Air Jordan, but I, you know, my parents would give me $50 for a pair of shoes. And what has lost a little bit of people forget about is the Bo Jacksons. You know, we're talking about the Air George, but the Bo Jacksons and Bo knows with Nike that I was really into that. So they were 120 bucks. So I had to go cut seven lawns to save up and get these amazing Bo Jackson shoes. So I think, I think Nike was one of the, the early brands for me that had an impact. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow for seven years. I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is John Hall, brand and product marketing director for the Whirlpool Corporation the world's leading home appliance company. Whirlpool is a Michigan-based, $21 billion, 109-year-old company with brands we all know like Genair, KitchenAid, Amana, Maytag, and of course, the Whirlpool brand. John is one of the world's leading practitioners of brand purpose, and oh my, is he passionate about it. His work on Whirlpool's purpose has led to top-line growth in a slow-growing category and earned the most prestigious award in the marketing industry, the Grand Prix at the Cannes Lions Festival. A graduate of West Point and a rock war veteran, a Chicago MBA who began his business career at Kraft, this is my conversation with John Hall. John, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I consider myself to be extremely fortunate to have gotten to know you in a couple different settings over the past year or so. And your story on brand purpose is one of the best I've heard in my career. So I am so looking forward to talking with you today about purpose and about purpose on Whirlpool. But before we unpack that, I have to ask you, as a dad of four boys in the middle of this pandemic, how are you doing professionally and personally in your life? Yeah, thank you, Jim. It's like I said, it's been an honor. It's an honor to to spend some time with you. So thank you for the time. Um, you know, this has been a wild time, as, as a lot of your your guests have shared, and it's been a, a range of emotions. Um, the obvious things about protecting, you know, safety and wellness of our, you know, my employees, my team, um, and trying to keep a, a sense of clarity and prioritization as we go forward is is something that's at the forefront for us. Uh, but on the uh, on the personal side, uh, it's been it's been pretty awesome. You know, I mean, with shorter commutes, I'm able to spend more time with my kids. Um, homeschooling right now has kind of opened my eyes to the materials that they're learning in school and their different work styles. And my wife's been working really hard with them on homeschooling. Um, we've done a ton of a uh, ton of outside activities just with with the boys and I. Um, basketball being a huge one. So I think we've made quantum leaps in our, in our jumper and our crossover. Uh, and then a lot, one other thing that's been kind of new, and I know you're, you're a big fan of this is uh, tennis. We, for the first time picked up tennis. Um, it's a sport that I never, uh, in the past 
really thought about. I was more, you know, football, baseball, basketball, uh, track, those type of things. But tennis, holy cow, what a fun sport. My brother and I play it uh, and we're just trying to figure it out right now. But my kids are starting to get into it. It's a really awesome sport. Super. Yeah, I did do, I, I just did a tennis uh, cardio class this morning, early this ah, very morning. Good. So I use it good. for my fitness. I did team sports as a kid, as you did. And tennis, I, I, I learned as an adult. And I just love it. You're outdoors. It's still competitive. You're running around. There's camaraderie. So good luck with it. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Maybe we can play a, a fun match I would someday. love that. That would be fantastic. I got to get a lot better first, though. <laughs> hey, what, what are some rituals you've developed? You're, play, you're playing a lot outside with your boys. You're working from home. You're staying in touch with your team. But are there any rituals that might be interesting for our listeners that you've developed as we've all operated, we're all operating in a sort of a different paradigm right now? Yeah. You know, one of the rituals um, that I've developed is just finding time to be like with myself in reflection. Um, and, you know, you know, pre-COVID, if you think about it, like we're so on the go, we're constantly moving from one thing to another. You, a lot of times you don't have the time to sit back and reflect. And so that's been really neat. I find myself sitting in my office between Zoom calls, just sitting there staring at the wall and I got a whiteboard and I just kind of start writing. So I'm a dreamer. So that gives me a chance to dream a little bit. So, so I love that part. That, that's a ritual. Uh, certainly working out, as, as many of your, your audience members have, have shared, working out is uh, critical during this time period just to keep that, that, the, the mind balanced. Um, and then getting outside. Just get once you that sun hits you, if you you know, if your office is on the inside, just just getting outside, get some of that fresh air. You know, we're, we're in the Midwest, so we've been dealing with some colder weather. So now it's starting to heat up and really getting outside and getting hit by that sun and hearing some of the kids outside playing is something that I look forward to daily. So with your team, any rituals with your team at work that you'll carry over? You're talking about thinking more, reflecting more, getting outside. Yeah, with my, well, you know, with my team, one of the things that, that honestly kind of dates back to some of my experience in the Army is right now in the, in the face of uncertainty is the importance of communication is we're constantly in communication, whether it's through email, we're doing a lot of Zoom calls where there's no topic. We're just sitting there talking, coffee, happy hours. Um, we've moved on to start to play some games. We play this fun game online. It's called uh, Quibbish or Fibbish, something like that, but it's, it's really fun just to get their kind of minds off of off of, um, you know, everything that's going on and, and, and just being together. So just the importance of in these times of uncertainty to almost over communicate. And I think that's something we'll, we'll carry over post COVID and all that, all that stuff. Um, and then the other thing I'm, I, you know, I'm curious and I, I think we may carry over is there definitely is a sense of like you getting a lot done while you're working from home. So I could see us maybe on Fridays or Thursdays or something like that more in a, uh, you know, we've worked from home in the past, but I could see that being more part of the, the, uh, the team schedule a day of the week that they're kind of doing the, their home type remote work. You're the largest home appliance company in the world. From a consumer perspective, are you, what are you picking up that might be interesting for our listeners in terms of habits, practices, feelings, thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously everybody is isolated in their homes right now. Um, and for the, the industry that we're in, you know, major home appliances, um, a couple of things are happening. Um, one of them was our products have to work and they have to work well. Unfortunately, we do have great products. But if there is an issue, you can imagine that our call center support, our service network support has to be there to support these consumers and, and, and these, these people that we serve. The last thing we want are one of our, our products to fail in this, you know, these, these uncomfortable times. Um, space definite redefinition is going to be a huge one going forward, not just in the retail environment, but inside the home. 
Um, you know, I, 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 it's not surprising to hear that the Home Depots and the Lowe's are, are, are doing very well right now. A lot of people are rethinking the spaces inside their homes, extending, you know, decks. I've even heard some fun things about um, people putting offices out in the garage just to not be down in like a basement office and our side room office, putting them out, out in the garage so you can kind of really kind of be outside, but have some of that, that, that you know, cover from, from inside the garage. Um, the, uh, appliances are still being used. You know, you think about refrigerators, they're, you know, people are stocking up on, uh, meats. Uh, and so, you know, second refrigerators, um, washers and dryers, uh, people, you know, obviously don't really want to do that stuff by hand. So these, these products are, you know, continuing to be essential in people's lives. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I guess in these times, it's uh it's good to see that our industries continue to do well. I'm using my KitchenAid a lot. Oh yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And uh, yeah, the KitchenAid stand mixer is on fire. Um, I'm seeing it all over online. In fact, the KitchenAid just team just did an awesome campaign called "Making It Together." Um, really bringing people together when life gives you lemonades, like makes you know, uh, um, uh, life gives you lemon, life gives you lemons, make lemonades out of it type thing. And then one of our other brands, Ropo Brand, really tying into their purpose, has kicked off this uh, creative campaign around the chore club and engaging kids. Uh, inside the home and and being a part of the chores and the cooking and the cleaning and the washing, which which honestly helps to build self reliant skills as they grow older. So they're both kind of expressing their purposes through these times. Beautiful. Well, listen, you're talking about purpose, and I want to talk about that a lot during this podcast. But before we get into whirlpool and purpose, and hear your personal story on this, you're an adjunct professor at Notre Dame. That's right. At the Mendoza School. So I suspect you talk about purpose with students there. So I would like you to sort of helicopter up and talk about when you talk about purpose with students at that great university, how do you speak about it? You know, how do you, how do you define it? How do you, how do you know it when you see it? What's your guidance to them if they're interested in the concept? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I love to talk about this and I think that, that my, you know, I, I'm a believer in purpose-driven marketing works. Um, I've got examples where it worked. I've seen it um, deliver results that are beyond the results that we we're expecting. Um, so that's a big part of the class that I teach. Um, we focus on um, um, creating a, a, a situational analysis of the industry that you're competing in and then starting to build your brand foundations and, and getting to brand leadership and and then translate and doing that first and translating that into developing products and services. Uh, that are going to win in a market that are aligned with your you, the, the consumer you've mapped your brand in and what the brand wants to stand for, and then ultimately starting to activate it in market and then and then and then teaching them how to measure it. But at the core of everything that that I'm teaching down there is this idea that purpose driven marketing is what should drive the entire business, drive the entire build, uh, P and L, drive the marketing mix. And so, you know, at the, the bare bones, we all know that purpose is like what your brand or you as a person or, or an organization stands for. It's their existence. You know, we've seen the Simon Sinek work and, you know, it's awesome. Um, and a lot of brands do that. And they work with the creative agencies and they build these beautiful purpose statements. And then they put them on paper and they sit there. And that's one version of it. And that's the version that, that I don't teach at Notre Dame. The version I teach is when you turn it alive in your organization and you partner with the, you know, the executive leaders in your organization across the different functions and you get buy in and ownership and um, they champion it forward. And then we start to take the purpose that the brand wants to stand for and apply it into the positioning. 
and the positioning translates to the services and products you're offering. I've even seen our purpose impact our pricing decisions, our, our channel decisions, our, um, our showroom decisions, uh, our recruiting, our retention, our engagement, all that stuff. And as it starts to find its way there, you start to see people act and behave and walk inside your organization differently uh, in line with that purpose. And when you nail that, the results come. Like the hardest part is the getting your getting it seated inside your organization. And when you get that, the results come and people go above and beyond. And people want to be a part of something because it's bigger than themselves. And that's that's what we're trying to teach in the setting at Notre Dame. And we use real we'll take real like live brands and try to rewrite their purpose statements on what they should do to grow their business and drive it, drive it through the business. But it's it's fun. It's it's exciting to see them see it come to life in that academic environment, because I didn't I didn't get it in schooling. I kind of learned it from folks like you and Chris Kemchinski when I worked mm -hmm. for Kraft Foods over time. And was able to start to apply it in the whirlpool setting. Yeah. Now, I was in a meeting a few weeks ago with you, and you were sharing the learning from the whirlpool case study, which has done amazing things, won incredible awards, et cetera, et cetera, including the FEs, a Grand Prix. But your story really began when you were serving in the U.S. Army in Iraq. That's where you got, I don't know, some real-world experience about purpose applied to something uh, that's not, you know, in a creative way. You took purpose and applied it to your work. And I'd love you to start with that because I think it's a wonderful story. It seems like you gained a lot of your foundational passion for this yeah. and that experience. So if we could rewind and if you could share with our listeners a bit of that story and then we'll get into the Whirlpool case. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I, um, I had... Um, when I graduated from West Point, went into the military and as, as an officer, and um, I uh, was honored and privileged to lead soldiers in Iraq in direct combat, direct and indirect combat operations. And um, for a year and a half, um, and about halfway through my second deployment, the second year that I was there, I was in the uh, kind of Samara, Edouard, uh, Tikrit area, which was the northern tip of the Sunni Triangle, it was a pretty bad area. Um, and I got promoted to captain. I got moved to over to a, a new unit. Um, and so I was airborne qualified, ranger qualified, used to kind of getting bad guys off the streets, used to doing presence patrol checkpoints, trying to find the insurgents. And all of a sudden I'm reporting to this guy named Lieutenant Colonel Artik. And, and he says, you're going to be a non-lethal officer. And I was like, well, what, what? <laughs> non-lethal officer in combat. What does that mean? And I got a team of 20 soldiers. And um, my buddy, Nick Stankovich, he kind of leans over and he says, I think he wants you to do marketing. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't really know what, what marketing was at the time. But basically, we had a, a police station that was fully functional, fully staffed. And we had been training the police force and we had been training the Army force for years. And they were like fully capable of going out and serving the community if there's a problem. The problem was nobody, none of the, none of the local population was calling the 911 number. Like in the United States, if there's a problem, we call 911 and folks come to, you know, police comes to fix, you know, the problem. Well, we're there, no one would call. So my mission was to get the local population, a town of 20,000 people to start to call the 911 number. And so that's where this idea of marketing came up. And I know it sounds a little cliche, but it's the honest to God truth. Nick Stankovich told me, I, I just do what Nike does. And I said, <laughs> so it, I was like, 
Okay, so I'll do what Nike does. So, which was kind of interesting because I do, you know, I know you and I share a similar story on, you know, the shoe, tennis shoes when we were younger. But and, Nike you know, will be very happy to yes, hear they inspired yes, this work. Yes, yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very, very much inspired by Nike. So, um, so the first thing that, that my team did is we built a radio station. We, we a, a completely, there was an old radio station about the half the size of the football field. We stood up the antenna, most spent most of the money to, to um, hire a DJ from the Saddam area. And I started working, uh, writing talking points on what we're going to talk about. And my battalion cavalry commander, um, who was in charge of this operations of 20,000 people, was going to come on the air and speak live uh, with the local religious leaders, army commanders, police chiefs, like government leaders live on the air. And um, it was going to be translated and it was being broadcast to the, the town of Tikrit and town of Ivoire. Uh, at the same time, we had patrols going out every day. So I was giving them radios. Pass these radios out. Tell people to tell people to tune into the radio station. It was it was something like Tuesday or Wednesday at one o'clock. Um, uh, I ended up starting to build uh, billboards. So stood up twelve billboards in the in the town of Edouard. I, I like to joke with some of my creative teams that I've done creative direction, but uh, they don't they don't buy it at all. So so what were the headlines <laughs> on the billboards? Yeah, so on the billboards on one side it was this this picture of a mom helping a young child with these beautiful eyes, and it just said for help call this number. Basically for help call nine one one. On the back side was um, these are decent sized billboards was. All these kids with the sun coming up behind them, and it said for peace and prosperity, call this number. Um, and so, so then we, you know, we got the radio station up and running, turned it into a radio show, basically. And so, the first week we get it on, and I've got a, a religious leader talking with my lieutenant colonel, and they're just communicating for about an hour. Um, not sure what's what's happening. Um, by the second week, we're back on the air, and into the second week, started a newspaper actually. So I started bringing patrol or uh, journalists with me on patrols, and we were fixing, we were drop, dropping school supplies off for the kids. We were fixing generators at hospitals. We were providing security so the governments could like govern, start having meetings, council meetings. Um, and then by the uh, so so we've got a little bit of print, a little bit of out of home, and then the radio station kicking, and 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 soldiers out doing patrols talking about this. So people start to tune in and probably by the second week, all of a sudden, people start calling 911. They start calling the hotline and we're getting reports of locations where if we go into this house and go into the basement, there's a, web, uh, a bomb making facility. Um, we're getting reports that on a side of a road, there's a, a carcass. If we go look inside that carcass, we found, you know, a, a roadside bomb. Um, they started reporting like in names of people that we should get off the streets. And so all of a sudden we're getting this, this battlefield intelligence and we're able to very targeted pull people off the streets and we're starting to see a decline in deadly attacks on a weekly basis. Um, it was, so that was one of the, the KPIs and it was interesting because probably by the, the third or fourth week, we're sitting there live on the air and all my soldiers are outside pulling security. Uh, cause we got, you know, a, a colonel here in the station yeah. with an antenna and everyone knows that we're here. It's a pretty big violation of military doctrine and, um, the radio show is getting attacked. So we're in a live firefight with the enemy while the radio station is going on. So we knew we were having an impact. That was like where some of the, you know, the the feedback that we were getting that this was working. So we were so committed to it that we ended up bringing Apache helicopters in hours before the show, uh, M1A1 main battle tanks to sit there as uh, security to kind of deter anyone from coming our way. And we started, uh, we, we got to the point within three or four weeks where 
the local people could call in and speak directly to the lieutenant colonel and it would be translated live live, live on the air. So so we were doing marketing in combat in Iraq and that's really where my passion for marketing started in line with with purpose because um you know in the military you're 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 serving your country, you're serving your brothers in arms, you're you're it's 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 way bigger than you as as an individual and and we felt at that time that that we were really trying to rebuild the country and stand it up to be more prosperous in the future. And I can tell you personally, I had a a, a personal like like vision of like these younger generation was going to grow up in a better society than than their parents did. And and so it was it was heavily motivated by 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 a sense of purpose um, when we were doing this in Iraq. How your experience at West Point and in your five years of active duty, Army Ranger School, et cetera, shaped you as a leader. Yeah. I mean, those are, yeah, those are, you know, those are, those are huge influences in my life. And one thing about West Point, the first thing they do is they break you down. You know, I mean, the captain of the football team, captain of the basketball team, like get out there. You think you're, you know, 18 years old, you know what you're doing. And all of a sudden they're like, you're nothing. You're just a follower at this point. And then the way the academy set up is your sophomore year, you end up leading two people. And then your junior year, you start leading a team of 10. And then your senior year, you're leading cadets. You're leading like you're, the, the core is leading itself. Um, you know, anywhere from 40 people up to 40 students up to, you know, well over a hundred. And so through that development, you're taking classes. It's like a leadership factor. They're teaching you about leadership failures of leaders in the past. And, and I started to find my style was going to be more of, uh, like, don't ever ask anyone to do something you won't do because I hated when people asked me to do something they wouldn't do. So there's almost a lot of like the, po- the positives I saw from leaders and the negatives are what I kind of pulled in. Uh, but don't ever ask anyone that you're not willing to do something. Um, take ownership accountability of not only uh, the hard thing is the failures. I made a huge failure uh, in Iraq. Um, and it actually ties really close to marketing. Uh, and it's a whole story about uh, uh, firing artillery. Um, where, where my, my unit was like a counterfire unit for a period of time. So, um, the enemy would fire indirect mortars and rockets at us. And when we, what we would do is when that projectile would hit its summit, we had radars that would pick it up and it'd calculate where they shot it from. Mm-hmm. And so my team were the ones that would shoot back, um, called counterfire. And I made a mistake, a communicate of all things, Jim, a communication mistake. I had told the gun platoons. Um, on this special munition, which was called a rocket, rocket assisted projectile, it had actually uh, like a tab on the back. And, and they're taught that when you get a wrap round, you take the tab off, which gives it the propulsion. Well, I told them, don't take the wrap, the, 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 the tag off unless I tell you. And so two o'clock in the morning, 15 kilometers out, we get a mission for a wrap round. And I run the calculation with my team um, to not put the to not to, to to leave the tag in and they're trained to pull it out that one met that one that one conversation i should have known didn't translate and then my message through transmission was against what their default was mm. they popped the rounds and it goes five kilometers farther and it just missed an engineering checkpoint of our own soldiers 20 oh soldiers my. out there almost killed all of them and that's two o'clock in the morning at six in the morning i get ripped my whole team of 10 people ripped out of the field i thought we were going back to the united states a, a unit that was just taken out of the field that was on rest and recovery got put back because we failed so we went and that was a failure 
A communication wow. failure. So we went into intense training, 12 hours for the next three weeks, not even knowing if we were going to get put back in the fight. And then about two months later, by the way, that the time it takes to do counterfire was about five minutes. And so you can imagine the enemy got real good. They'd fire and they'd move. Mm-hmm. My team got it down to under 59 seconds after like this failure. And wow. we had two wow. soldiers killed in Samara two months later. And they needed a counterfire team. And they sent, of six, they sent my team over there because of how good we got. We spent 72 days. We fired over a thousand rounds in and around schools to making sure, you know, we weren't hitting any of that stuff. All under 60 seconds. And it went from, I mean, the ultimate communication failure to this unbelievable strength where we, you know, saved lives out over there. And so today, like when it comes to communicating through, media through email through oral like it's 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 like almost an obsession on driving clarity certainly you know own the team's decision and provide direction and guidance but even if the team makes a mistake you're responsible like for the things that you didn't even tell them to do which is which is kind of a hard concept i think um uh a sense of you know when i went to to ranger school like the, the 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 team the like winning through people like you cannot get through that place without a brotherhood of people around you and, and you know, um, 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 just being there for each other, a sense of teamwork. Uh, and, and one other thing I'd, I'd, I'd want to add is um, this sense of momentum. And I think it applies to today's leaders right now in COVID. Um, leaders have to create momentum. They have to create this sense of forward movement because the minute you move the lose that, everything starts to crumble. And organizations, an organization I'm in is doing a great job. Our leadership team is continuing to move us forward and and keeping our you know our focus down 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 the road. So you got to create that momentum, even if it's a little piece. It's like a small part of a snowball. You keep building on it; it gets bigger and it gets bigger, and you'll start to move people uh, in in the right direction. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We're going to talk about your career in a few minutes, but I want you to flip to your Whirlpool experience. You just told us sort of where your passion for purpose, at least applying it to uh, uh, a situation, you know, happened in Iraq. So you're, you've been at Whirlpool about seven years now, and, and you're, you, you know, you've been promoted, and you're, you're now uh, you're a brand that's doing extremely well, winning awards, and and you're and you've and you've told this purpose story in other situations I've heard it. Our listeners likely haven't. So can you tell me what when in that seven years at Whirlpool did this idea of purpose hit? What was the catalyst? How did it germinate? How did it start? I mean, you're you know you're the largest home appliance company in the world. You make big equipment, right? so. And it's probably a pretty engineering-oriented culture. That's right. That's so right. tell me the story of how it began. How did you get momentum? Why? What was the compelling reason to do it? So if you could go back to the beginning about 
and start telling that story about how the idea germinated? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, honestly, it started a a little bit earlier than that. Um, You know, when I had went from the military to craft, um, there was a big learning curve for me, uh, especially in building brand foundations and brand fundamentals. Like I was like a whole new world to me and I struggled. Um, but anytime I struggle or I fail in something, I tend to like want to like make it a strength. And I went after it. Um, and I just like opened myself up to the craft training. They do a great job training people. Um, and then there was a pivotal moment where Chris Kamchinski came into the organization. Um, and when he came in, he brought this deep sense of modernizing the brands, of setting the foundations correctly, of building purpose into the brands and really breaking through and, and being more effective with our product development and our and, and our marketing work. Um, and I was surrounded by some some brilliant marketers at the time, Noel Omera, who's the CMO at, at Tyson's and Trina Schmelter and Ivan Hidalgo, Chris Miles. And, and I kind of sponged it all up. I, I, I learned and listened to what they were saying. And I, I didn't understand it all. And so I studied, I read, I read Jim Stangle's book and I read, you know, other, you. Ocker and, and, and Adam Morgan. And so when I made that transition, you know, I was actually going to another company and then we switched and I came over to, to Whirlpool because I saw an opportunity to really go after a purpose driven marketing, um, uh, not, and not a campaign, not a strategy, like a, a way of business. And, um, I, uh, reported to a guy named Bill Beck, um, and he was wide open to resetting the brand foundations. Um, John, before you jump into this, you left Kraft to go to Whirlpool. Uh, what was the, what was really interesting for you at the time? Cause you obviously were in a great company, having a great career. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing to me was really, uh, expanding into other industries and, um, you know, when you're in a role for a little while, you, there's a little bit of redundancy, even when you're in different brand, like 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 different brands, but in similar categories. But when you go, when you stretch yourself into a new industry, a category, it, like you're learning and you're uh, skyrockets. And I, you know, I tend to like to apply learning agility and be in an environment where I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to listen to what people are saying and I'm going to apply some of my experiences. And so Whirlpool is a perfect opportunity for that. Um, and so when I got there, it was very clear that um, we had been investing in the brand for a number of years and the brand health was declining. Uh, market share was declining um, and we we're struggling. Um, we had great product and we were just coming uh, not long after that, coming out of the, you know, the financial crisis so it was 2013 or so. Um, and the organization was shifting from to a more marketing led brand led organization. And so I got to be a part of that transition. It was awesome to watch. And they're very successful now because of that transition they're, and they've made great gains. Um, but for Whirlpool in particular, uh, we knew there was something incredibly powerful that no appliance brand had unlocked. These products sit in people's homes. They touch them every day. A refrigerator, you could argue, outside of the phone is the product that is touched the most by the family. And so um, we had really their brand strategy was all off. It was it was mapped into, um, you know, heavily influenced by, you know, engineering and, and, and trade expectations. It wasn't really aligned with like the true organic heritage of the brand. And so the first thing we did was we, we modernized the, the consumer. 
Um, we, we shifted away from more of uh, the stereotypical caregiver at home to a more modern uh, caregiver at home. Um, it could be male, female, but these people at, at the core of what they were doing the, was this idea that caring for my family is the most important thing that I do. That's their most important role. And interestingly, in the modern era, there's a lot of pressure on, you know, a job, having a job and raising a family and making it look easy. So there was this incredible tension in that. Um, and up to this point, the industry in all in total was talking about the products as tools for survival about efficiency and productivity. We were going to reframe that mindset away from that into the role the appliance plays as, as, as family care. And people were like, what's family care? And when we surveyed consumers, they, they would say, oh, family care, that's like cooking, cleaning, washing, driving my kids to uh, activities. So John, how did that movement begin within on the Whirlpool brand? Was it a leader? Was it you? Was it a team? Was it the business situation? Was it more dialogue with with consumers? Yeah, it was a combination of all that. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was more dialogue with consumers, ethnographic research, both online and home. Um, there was an expectation from leadership that we were going to elevate this brand and start. We're investing in it. We expect a return on the brand health metrics, and we had we had data showed that the health metrics were heavily correlated with the intent to purchase and market share. Um, and we wanted, honestly, Jim, we were looking at organizations like P&G and seeing like, like, there's no reason we can't have that type of positive impact uh, inside our organization and, 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 uh, and, and other companies as well out there. Um, and then, um, um, you know, we another thing, here's a telltale sign. When your own internal employees are constantly giving you feedback of what you're doing wrong and why things aren't working and what they think of the, the brand, you, you got a problem. And so part of the development of this purpose was interviewing retirees and interviewing people who had been there for a while and interviewing leaders and what they wanted the brand to stand for, for over the next you know, 10, 20 years. And we found that in the DNA of the company, as we unpacked it decade by decade, you know, in the 60s and 70s, what products we were launching, what was the message? We found that this was a company that was always doing the right thing, that was always putting others and sacrificing for others. Um, and we changed the archetype. It, we, it was mapped into uh, kind of a, a hero-like archetype. And we took it over to a caregiver archetype, which is about sacrificing for others and putting others in front of you. And the light bulb started to go off. Um, and, and through the synthesis of all that, we got to this internal idea that behind every chore is an act of love. And it's kind of counterintuitive because we put that in front of people. They're, they'll tell you like chores aren't acts of love. They're, they're thankless tasks. I mean, you know, Cinderella was punished with chores. Like, <laughs> you know, that's how you, you punish your kids. But when you talk to someone on a call center who's really angry that their washing machine broke and you ask them why and they say, well, it was, you know, $600. But why, you know, why are you so angry? Well, I can't wash the clothes. But, but why are you so angry? And you get down to like, you know, my spouse or my kid can't go to school with, dirty clothes, you understand that the role that these appliances play are actually helping these families thrive out, out in the world. And so it truly is um, uh, behind every chore is an act of love. And these cooking, cleaning, washing are part of the emotional glue that holds families together. And so the purpose was clear. We got to this idea that we exist to help families thrive. And when you say that to engineers, you say that to the sales partners, and you say that, and they understand it across all the functions, they go from building, you know, you know, machinery and b bending metal to like a direct connection with helping people out in the world live better lives. It, it, and that's where it starts to take off. I just want to pause on that. You said some remarkable things in that in the in the last few minutes. This this thought when you're on a brand, 
talk to people who've worked on the brand, who have retired, who care a lot about it, look at the history, go back to the origin, remember things going well, not going well. That's right. And then talk to people who talk to your consumers and ask them why. Have, have a discussion larger than the function of the machine or the product or service. Those are such deep lessons that are so fundamental. But great leaders on great brands ask those kind of questions and, and engage in that kind of activity. So I just want our listeners to, to rewind and listen to that again. There are so many lessons in that for every brand and every business. Thank you, Jim. So I, w- I want you to um, talk a little bit about, you just talked about, you know, it's, this is grounded in the consumer. Uh, it's grounded in your history. And then what? You know, you have a large organization. You know, what, how did you get everyone engaged? How did you start activating it? How did it become relevant in people's daily work? What were the challenges? You know, what were the yeah. headwinds? How did you, so tell a little bit of that story. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of good nuggets in there. I think, you know, uh, like um, operationally, like, you know, s- driving it into the business, we immediately started to translate it into our product roadmap and our service roadmap and our experience roadmap. And we mapped it into both short-term and long-term thinking um, where you could start to rally the engineering resources against territories or need states that, that were specific to that brand. And by the way, in that process, you have to say no to a lot of things like like we don't talk about that enough. Like great marketing says no, 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 because you're starting to focus in on something you really, really want to stand for. Um, The other thing we start mapping it into is in this, I think, is really I don't see it a lot and I, I see it inside my organization. I think it is powerful. We start to map it against the path to purchase. That the brand's going to activate at different points, different ways, at different parts of the path to purchase. And and the reason why some of those, uh, as I talked about purpose earlier, why some of them fail is because they have one point of activation. They put all that, they put everything there. And the truth is the the consumer changes through the path to purchase. And so you have to alter the way that you're bringing the purpose, purpose, purpose to life way outside the funnel, through the funnel deep at the moment of purchase and, and, and then beyond. And so I think that's a, a big part of, of how to like seed it in, inside the broader organization. Um, there's also a lot of um, uh, sharing. I mean, marketing has the responsibility to go out into other functions across the organization and educate on the consumer, educate on the foundations of the brand. And what I find is that when you sit down with your engineers and you sit down with your sales partners and you sit down with your other functional leaders, finance, they want this. They're actually like longing for this and, and share and make sure that that they get buy in across your, your, your different function organization that they know how they can help. That's what people want to do. They want to step in and help push towards this purpose. Um, and then the last thing I'd share, uh, which we're very proud of. And we made a major pivot. We, you know, early on in, in, in the, the, the work of the campaign to create a platform is called Everyday Comma Care. All the you know, we stand for everyday care. And that's the type of the, the, you know, cooking, cleaning, washing, it matters. Don't think it doesn't matter. It's an important part of your lives and it's part of the glue that holds that family together. We shifted, we made a major shift instead of just talking about it. We said, you know what? Since we champion the importance of real family care, we're going out in the world and we're going to prove it. And we started creating these acts um, where we went out, some big, some small, where we proved the value of care. And we found that families that, 
cook and eat dinner together, the kids have a higher vocabulary than if you read a book. And so for me with four boys, I'm like, holy cow, like let's have more dinner. Um, we found that children for a period of time who were not having to do chores grew up and had a sense of unreliance. Like they leave the house and they don't know how to, you know, run a washing machine. They don't know how to cook their own food. And so you're seeing like, like bringing them into the process. And that's why Whirlpool is doing a chair club right now, chore club right now. You're starting to create self-reliance. But then there was an interesting data point that we came across and we found out that in underprivileged schools, um, kids, one of the top, one of the top contributors to truancy. So kids not going to school was unclean clothes. And that did not sit with well with us. Something like one out of five kids across the country don't have access to clean clothes and they're seven times more likely to drop out of school. And as a, a brand that champions the importance of real family uh, care, we, we couldn't stand for that. And so we started to put washers and dryers under the radar in underprivileged schools. How did you develop that insight and knowledge? Was it, were you working with different partners? Was it your team going out and, you know, talking to different communities? How did, how did you, yeah, how did you, you know, kind of uncover that, that, yeah. that, that insight? You know, Jim, I mean, part when we, we had this strong sense of purpose in helping families thrive, you, you could kind of feel inside that, like, you're not doing enough. Like, like what you're doing is, tr you know, traditional media and you're kind of broadcasting and you're telling people. But, like, how are you getting in the fight? How are you changing people's behavior? How are you changing the way they think and feel about the role chores play in their lives? And so that caused us to start to start dig and more data. And we started researching, like, childhood development. Um, we partnered with a, a, a internationally recognized uh, psych, uh, a psychologist that specializes in development, Dr. Rendy, uh, Richard Rendy. And we started to see that um, that 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 we could go out in the world and we could prove that this is that the way we've always thought about in society, that chores are just thankless tasks mm -hmm. is not is not true. And, and, and it's kind of going back to the, the underprivileged schools. So we thought, OK, if let's put our money where our mouth is. If if in fact unclean clothes is a top contributor to truancy, then let's let's go out and let's prove it. So we started putting them in schools, partnering with PTO leaders and, and administrators and teachers. And all the kids knew was that um, they just you know when they when they were done with their clothes, put them in a put them in a like a little baggie and give them to the teacher. And teachers would clean them and give them back. Well, behind the scenes, we were recording attendance rates, grades, social activity. We had technology that could show how much the how often the loads, uh, the washers and dryers were running, and we found out that ninety five percent of the kids in the program saw an increase in attendance, and the teachers started to report more engagement at research and, and social activities, increase in grades, and when we saw that, it, it just became about expanding it, expanding it. I think we're we've impacted over almost thirty eight thousand kids. I think to this point, something like eighteen different cities, and it continues to continues to grow. The pro, pro program is called Care Counts, and and that is us in the world putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to the purpose. And that's uh, I mean, the principle behind that is you obviously embedded the purpose in your daily work, in your products and services, in your innovation pipeline. But you went out in the world to say, can our ambition be higher? And can we do some symbolic actions to bring this purpose to life that make a difference in the lives of our society and our consumers and to inspire our organization? Like, I can only imagine the level, le the level of energy and creativity across the team on the Whirlpool brand in multiple functions is at an all-time high. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're in, they're in year six of this right now, you know, and I think that that's the measure of like, 
a true purpose-driven work is does it last the test of the time when we've had multiple leadership changes through through this and it's it's embedded in our in our culture i mean it has an you know i believe it has an impact on our leadership philosophy i believe it has an impact on our engagements and i believe it has an impact on talent that we recruit in you know i know when i teach some of this down at notre dame students say i was going to google and now i want to go to whirlpool how do i get into whirlpool i want to be a part of this um, and, and that's that that's that second, third order impact that we don't talk about. It's hard to measure. So, John, how have you sustained it over six years? And, you know, that's the, that's the that's the prop, a big issue with purpose. It's, it's often very leadership dependent. So when a leader leaves a brand or a company, it starts to fall apart. How have you sustained it? Have you built it into KPIs? Have you built it into your effectiveness measurements? You know, do you recruit for the next leader who who believes in this philosophy? How what what are your what are your yeah, tips? Yeah, I think you nailed it. it. Yeah, a couple. Th- I mean, a couple of things is you know we we you know from from the very beginning we had very strong leadership at at, at very senior levels that um you know that really wanted to see us turn the brand health metrics around. And as you're seeing the results come in, like you're gonna you know gonna stick with it. And so I think you know as we become a stronger and stronger marketing organization you you have that level of support. So as a leader, you have to make sure that you're getting alignment up and down the, the chain of command. Um, from uh, If you think about from your like scorecarding metrics, and we do a wonderful job managing our scorecarding metrics, uh, very detailed, uh, very robust, um, uh, but you're putting in things like, you know, do we own like family care? Do we own the word care? Um, when people think of appliances and they think of, uh, you know, family care, everyday care, what brand comes to mind and are we growing that? So it's embedded in kind of the, 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 the KPIs. Um, also, you know, one of the greatest ways to kind of create longevity, I think, is put it into the core competency of your company. What do you make? What product do you make? What is your service? And if that is what's being, that's why I said in the beginning, like it has to be in translated into the positioning in your products and services. And when you're spent, you know, for us, it takes a number of years to develop a new product, a washer, a dryer, dishwasher, refrigerator. When the organization is thinking about it through the lens of family care, everyday care, every day over time, it starts to, it starts to, it starts to, what's like concrete, it starts to like galvanize. Um, and then, yeah, we do, you know, we do the people that, you know, get the honor and privilege to, to, to lead that brand. Like it's, you know, we, we look at them, um, you know, the person, you know, we have a wonderful marketer leading the brand right now. And she was, um, she was, you know, one of the big, strong leaders when we started developing the everyday care work. So, so you have people kind of being promoted and growing up in the brand to start to lead the brand. So I think all, uh, one other thing I, I share, Jim, is we've done a wonderful do- job with like, documenting brand foundations and brand style guides. And when you come into the organization, you get a book and you're like, here's, this is how, these are the care instructions. This is how we protect this brand. Um, And people are expected to kind of master it and then start to apply apply it forward. And I think too many teams out there don't crystallize the strategy and put it in writing and lock it down in beautiful books that people go home and read and like fall in love with. So yeah, I know you can't say a lot about your business results, if it might be confidential, but what can you say about effectiveness of, of it since you've started? Your top line growth, bottom line growth, what can you say that would be okay to hear publicly? Yeah, I, um, you know, we, we've seen, we, I mean, we, we've, I think, you know, when you look at the business results, we've, you know, Whirlpool's very healthy. I mean, we've got, you know, we've had a good 
run over the last couple of years. It's pretty public knowledge. Like we've, we've, we've done, we've done well. Um, and you know, the brand, there's a lot of reports out there that tell you Ropal is the most, Ropal brand in particular is the most trusted. Um, it's the most, it's starting to become incredibly relevant with the younger generation, uh, brand out there. We've seen a growth in our preference. We've seen growth in our purchase intent. We saw growth in our desire. I mean, a desire mm-hmm. is like a brand love, love metric. I mean, we're talking about appliances here. Um, you know, you can look in social media and people talk about like Ropal looks like they put a GoPro camera in my life. There's a sense of authenticity and realness. I mean, we're not, you know, we don't claim to be perfect by any means in, in life out there, in the kitchen's not, not perfect by, by, by any means. So I, I think, um, you know, we're continuing to do it in year six. So I think that shows you like how positive it has been for the organization. Other things, Jim, is our other brands have started to grow and develop almost kind of an all ships rise type mentality. Like the brand I lead now, Gen Air, like, you know, Maytag, KitchenAid, we're all taking cues from the success of that of that Ropal brand. It's, it's making all of us stronger and better marketers, and all of our brands are doing very, very well right now. I do want to kind of rewind on your career and talk a bit about some of the lessons throughout your career. So for our listeners, you grew up in Michigan. You went, you went to West Point, then five years of active duty and service, MBA at Chicago, Six years at Kraft, where you also earned a master's at Northwestern in sports administration and marketing. Seven years at Whirlpool. And three years ago, you founded an organization for youth athletes called Modern Day Knights. And you're a husband and dad, of course, which we talked about. So, wow. I mean, uh, amazing. You're still a young guy. Amazing path. I want you to talk about who has been your most influential inspiration or mentor so far. That's a tough call, I know. You've had Mm. a lot. But who would that be in your life Ooh, today? One. One. I'm just going to say one. Oh, wow, Jim. Um, I've had a couple. Uh, in, in fact, <laughs> I'm extremely grateful for the people that I've had the opportunity to, to, to be around. Um, you know, if I had to pick one, and he probably, if he's ever listened to this, would never think I'd, 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 I'd say this. But I think the time that Chris Kanchimski came into Kraft Foods he opened my world to what high standards look like. And Chris came in at what role? Chris came in as the vice president of marketing um, in the grocery division in Chicago, came in from Pepsi. And when he came in, he, uh, he raised the bar on the role of marketing. Um, I remember him once saying brands, brand, what he say? Brands or businesses don't struggle. Marketers just get fatigued. And um, he raised the standards. He expected a ton out of us. Um, he expected us to break through, even with scrappy, small budgets in some cases. And he talked about the power of creativity and the role that it could have in driving the business. And you know, honestly, as I took all this in, I, you know, you know, he was the he was the brand genius at Adweek. You know, he was the the decision maker behind the man with the golden voice when Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. Tied in with Ted Williams, the homeless guy from Columbus, Ohio, and went international and had a hugely positive impact on, on our business and raised the game of marketing inside craft. And, you know, many of our brands were doing extremely well during that time period. So I think that was a moment um, where I look back and anytime I'm uncomfortable and making a decision on Gen Air or some of the other brands or on my small business, I, I, I that's a time I go back to. And I just kind of wonder how Chris, what, what his, how he, what decision he would make. 
uh, through this. And as you know, he's very successful now, CEO of McDonald's. And, you know, so I think that, you know, he probably doesn't know it, but he, he had a hugely positive impact on my passion and in my uh, interest in purpose-driven marketing. And he, he set, he reset the standards, uh, set an ambition for the organization. Anything else about Chris that was made him particularly Yes. Great mentor for you. Yes, he he was a calculated risk taker. I mean, he was willing to, and I know Ted Williams is a great example. You know, you love it. Um, and um, he was a calculated risk taker. And I understood that if you wanted to win, if you wanted to gain market share, if you wanted to get out there and touch people in the world, that you were going to have to choose lanes and be distinct in your decision making, be committed and convicted and as a leader you're going to have to own it because if it fails you own it like it's on you if it does well then it's everyone shares in in in, in the in, in the wealth there so so i think there was a sense of uh, uh of risk taking that i saw him do at a high level that really empowered me to like lean in more than i had ever before john what's the most difficult decision you have made in this kind of life path i just outlined Uh, I've had, um, you know, maybe not a decision, but I've had some failures. I've had some huge setbacks. And I think um, the decisions that I've made in those failures and turning failures into strengths is probably what's sharpened me and kind of what's made me stronger as I, you know, try to have an impact on marketing organizations and have an impact on people around me. Um, I, I think it's, you know, I've had, well, I had one, you know, real major failure once when I was in Iraq, I've had major failures at Kraft and at Whirlpool. And I think it's the failures in, in not letting the failures cause me to crawl up in a fetal position, but to be hell bent on turning a failure into the strength that, that is, that is a space that I feel like, you know, I would share, like, don't let, don't turn your failures into your strengths. Any tips on doing that? Because, you know, so often people start to lose their confidence, which is a really slippery slope. So how have you managed to develop that resilience, capture the learning, you know, move ahead and and manage, you know, your business, your life, your career uh, and, and, and learning from the failure, which we all talk about a lot, but it's sometimes a bit harder to do. So what tips do you have on that for others? Yeah, I think. Um, you, one, one tip is, um, you got to get to know yourself. You got to have good situational awareness and you got to know what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And then surround yourself with people that aren't afraid to tell you like, Hey man, mm, that's not working or uh, it's not looking as good. And so both family members, you know, um, I got brothers, um, I've got mentors and, um, and I get a lot of tough feedback from mentors. <laughs> I hate to hear it. Like, um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think that that's kind of one, one thing is, is who you surround yourself with and who you're listening to. Um, and part of that situational awareness of yourself is people go through different stages. And, and I know when I have a failure, my first thing is going to be defense. And then when it sinks in and, and people around me know to let it sink in, um, I start to realize like I, as a leader, I own this, like I screwed this up and the person that needs to fix it is me and my team, and we're going to go fix it. And I find that that like gap of failure to getting it back to the expectation is where I'm the hungriest and where I'm going to drive the hardest. Um, and, and, and almost every time it becomes, it ends up becoming a strength. 
so, um, so yeah, I think it's just a little bit of the, like, you know, mentors you surround yourself with, um, you know, you know, knowing yourself and how you handle failure. Uh, and then, um, you know, knowing as you get through failure, you're going to, you're going to be in a better spot if you turn that thing into a strength. Yeah. What are you still working on as a leader? Me? Um, big thing that I'm working on right now is uh, a balance between having high standards and high expectations and bringing people and organizations with me in that direction. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with being able as a leader, adjust your style. Um, you know, you, you can't be a one style leader. You know, you have to be able to you have to be able to kind of be able to say, follow me. We're heading up this hill. And at the same time, you have to be you know, balance that compassionate empathy and patience with others that are thinking about things differently. And, and so that's, you know, that's, that's not easy to kind of be, you know, round that all out. And so that's, a, that's a lot of what I'm focusing on. So I spend a lot of time reading leadership books and it's interesting, you, you know, you know, leading, you know, soldiers in combat to getting in cross-functional leadership in a civilian role, like, like you never master leadership. It's you're always learning. And in a lot of ways, marketing is the same way. You're never going to master it. You're always learning, which is why I, I like the space between marketing and leadership. Cause it's, it, it, if you're in a continuous improvement, you're in into learning agility, you're always going to, you know, not feel like you've reached your potential. And so that's, that's some of the stuff I'm working on right now. And that's such an important mindset, John, and that's why you're such an effective leader, this continual learning and, and looking outside our normal uh, sphere, right? Looking at other industries, other leaders, that's other right. stories. There, there's lessons everywhere if we're just open to it. Yeah, absolutely. And Jim, and, I, and honestly, yeah, you, people probably tell you this, but in many of your, the, the people that you have on your podcast, the, I don't know if they realize and you realize the impact you're having on other people. Um, and so you got to keep doing that because I'm learning so much from when you have Fernando on and the CMO for PNG and these leaders like we're, you know, there's there's people out there that are eating this stuff up. And, and I've actually now turned it into I have the responsibility to also do that with my team and help train my team and help train these MBA students and these young little athletes in football that I coach and um, in organizations that I get a chance to lead from a marketing standpoint. And we, we do have that responsibility to continue to, to I guess. Pass it on to other people. And I, I think we all kind of are in that, that learning momentum, if you will. Listen, I, uh, I want to, I need, we need to close this up. So I'm going to end this podcast, as I always do, with sort of a curiosity round. But it's a bit of a lightning round of some questions I just want you to, to reflect on and give sort of snappy answers. And the first one is a brand or team right now that you really admire. Um. For sure, the Burger King and Fernando and all the work that's coming out there, it's becoming daily news. It's most everything they're doing is brilliant. Um, and it it just challenges me and it makes me uh, want to continue to get better. Um, and they're doing amazing work. You know, and I often think a little bit about that, that like, you know, Fernando, what he's doing at McDonald's and or excuse me, at Burger King and and Chris and what's yeah, going on at McDonald's. So I'm kind of like. There's a lot of creativity coming out of that category. A lot yeah. of creativity. It's exciting to watch and it's keeping all of us. It's making us all better. What are you reading now or a book that you've read recently that's had an impact on you that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, you know, I've, a book that I'm reading is How to Be Exceptional. So Driving Leadership Success by Magnifying Your Strengths. It's a book by John Zenger and Joseph Falkman. Um, and, and why I'd recommend it is, um, you know, it's all about what it takes to be an exceptional leader. Uh, but the way they break it down and the tactical changes that you can make in your leadership style to uh, to increase uh, some of the core attributes that they have in here 
uh, are, are incredible. And, and I love reading leadership books, but this is one that I can just chew up and like completely activate it. I can, I can, before I go into a meeting, I can open a book and get a good reminder because they have such clear like changes in your style. Um, I would definitely recommend to those who are, who are trying to make that step to become, you know, a bigger, broader leader. Your advice to other dads with four boys. Uh, my advice is to uh, pour into the moment is to um, I, I know they're going to grow fast. I know there's a point in time down the road where I'm going to look back and say, oh, my gosh, that went too fast. So every moment that you can kind of whether it's you know being out there and coaching with them or just playing a little bit of basketball with them or just getting on the ground and, you know, you know, playing cars with them um, you know, or learning. I, some All my kids are different. By the way, my wife and I have mapped them into like different archetypes. We know their <laughs> archetypes, which is really cool. I love that. It's a fun thing to do. And actually one of them I, you know, had a hard time connecting with and I found out, you know, he's an explorer archetype. So we spent a lot of time like, Hey, you want to go out on a bike ride? You want to go out in the world and do something? And he's totally drawn to that. So just just being with them because it's going to go by fast. You know, Jim, my boys, um, you know, they every Super Bowl, every year during the Super Bowl, um, and it, uh, we sit down and we drew the the Leo Burnett scale, one to ten. And three of my four boys, one of them's only a three year old. They they rate the Super Bowl ads. Uh, so the budding CMOs, but they oh, rate I the love Super that. Bowl ads. Do you remember which one they love this year? Oh, anything with animals. Anything with Marvel Comics or anything with candy in it, they gave it a 10. And, and the Leo Burnett Humankind Scale good. is like, a 10 is like change the world. So, <laughs> so they're giving good positive feedback to the marketers out there. Candy and puppies. It, it always yes. works. It always works. Yes. Now, who else would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? You know, I, and I've, I've shared this with, with, with uh, kind of other like, you know, educators in the space. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time in the fast paced goods in the in the service industry or the QSR. There's a lot of content in, in, in fast, fast moving goods, CPG. And, you know, I'd love to see more durables. Uh, it's actually incredibly complex. The, the path to purchase. I know it's a it's more of a highly considered purchase, but more from the durables industry, more from the auto industry. I'd love to I'd love to hear, you know, some of the leadership from Audi, Cadillac. Um, you know, those type of brands that have longer uh, paths to purchase is actually super complex. That space needs more and more savvy marketers. And, and, and having been in CMPG and in durables, I can tell you, it, durables is complex. And I, I think like it challenges me even more to be to be a, a better marketer. So I think more in that longer considered path to purchase, we, I'd love to see some more in that space. I love that. We'll do that. Great advice. John, this has been a treat. And, uh, and it, it was a, uh, a school of marketing, a school of life. You're an inspiring young man. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to have known you and, and, and it will continue that. But your story on purpose and your passion for it and your lessons are, are going to be so helpful for, for so many of our listeners. It inspires me and it will, it will inspire others. So thank you for being so generous with your time and your insights in this, uh, in this crazy time we are now all trying to manage through. Yes. Thank you very much, Jim, for having me. And um, thank you for being, you know, a role model for myself and others uh, like me. And it's been an honor and, um, you know, really appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Jim. That was my conversation with John Hall. I loved how John spoke about purpose as driving the P&L, as being a business strategy, a leadership choice, and how to enlist everybody in the organization as this is the way to do business. He speaks about purpose about as well as anyone in the industry. 
I also loved how he's a lifelong learner about leadership. He is a sponge. He learns from other people. He learns from books. He learns from models. He's continually learning about leadership. And I also loved when I asked him about his four boys and what his advice is for other fathers, he said, take time, enjoy the moment. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.